it's always a gift and a, a joy to celebrate a baptism. I also love that whenever I'm asking questions of people and telling about what baptism means as we do in preparation, that nobody's ever looking at me. It's always, always looking at the child, you know. Uh, and I also appreciated Jackson's eagerness uh, for the water there. I mean, he, I think he wanted to go all the way in. Um, I wanted to pick up a little bit with last week. We've been going through this series, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, through the summer. And we celebrated homecoming last week. And it was wonderful to have Bob Lowry, former pastor, to come and pray for us. And it was a gift to have Ed Brenniger, former pastor from 20 years ago, uh, come and preach and lead us in worship. He started, it, it was his idea to build the confidence cairn just outside as a sign of confidence in God's plans for the future of this church and blessing of this community. Um, I was reading an article that Linda Benfield had cut out of the paper and, and put on one of the tables back there, uh, interviewing Ed from the local paper 20, 25 years ago when this was put in place. And the rationale that he gave for it was that he had been reading about Abraham and the story of Abraham and God calling Abraham to go into the place that he had for him and that he went between Bethel and Ai and built an altar to the Lord. Now, interesting that as we come towards our 106th anniversary of the church, what have we been doing? We've been thinking about Abraham building altars and digging wells. Also, the week before, we had given this sermon on Joseph. And at the end of it, I was wanting to connect Isaac meeting uh, Isaac's um, servant meeting Rebecca at the well, and then Jacob meeting Rachel at the well, and how Joseph integrates both God's family of Israel with the world of the Gentiles, and how those marriages connect God's family with those outside of it, because God always calls people for the blessing of the whole world. And I used as the final illustration of the sermon how Jesus, in John chapter 4, meets a woman at a well who was a foreigner. And how all those things come together. Well, lo and behold, what is Ed's sermon scripture for his sermon last week? I don't know if you noticed this. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. It's like God has something, you know, we did, I didn't tell him any of this and he wasn't aware of it. It's like God has something to say to us, perhaps. And so this morning, uh, I want us to remember um, this familiar thing that we've seen traced out. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way through. How God calls into a new life. And early on in that passage, there's the experience of a little death and a little resurrection. A small descent or a falling asleep and then a being raised up now marked by God's promises and sent into the world. Abraham experienced this when God made a promise to him that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, that they would be like the stars of the heavens, that uh, he would be brought to a land and that he would make his name great and through his family bless the entire world. When God made that promise to Abraham, he caused him to fall into a deep sleep. It was a, a picture of death. 
And God, instead of God and Abraham passing through the covenant together, God alone does this. Because He's promising, not under Abraham's faithfulness necessarily, but under his, the validity of His own promise to Abraham that they would together be joined for this purpose and for this end. God passes through the covenant alone, ensuring that this promise to Abraham will be kept. And then Abram wakes up, and he ventures into this new life. Jacob, excuse me, Isaac. So after Abraham, then Isaac. Isaac experiences this little death and rebirth differently. He's taken up to Mount Moriah. Remember that one? And at the top of Mount Moriah, he discovers that he's been carrying the wood of the altar on his back, and that apparently there's no sacrifice, and his father Abraham binds Isaac and lays him atop the wood and is preparing to sacrifice him, when God intervenes and says no, he provides a substitute. He provides the ram with the crown of thorns around his head, right? And then, Je- and then Isaac, experiencing that foretaste of death, also now has a new lease on life. He is unbound. He is set free to be the one through whom God's promise is carried out into the world for the blessing of others. He has Jacob, Jacob who tricks his brother over and over again, who lies, deceives. To be called by God isn't necessarily to start out perfect, is it? Hospital for sinners is the church, yes? And so Jacob leaves home, fleeing Esau's wrath, his brother, after he's tricked him, on his way to a new place, a new identity. But on the way, what happens? A deep sleep. He lays his head down on the rock, He receives a dream in which a ladder extends from earth to heaven and angels are ascending and descending upon it. The Lord stands over all, gives him a new identity. Formerly, you were the one, the the liar, the deceiver, the heel grabber, means Jacob, but now you were the one to whom God has made promises for the blessing of the world. A little death and a little rebirth, a setting free and an entrance, a new entrance on life. Joseph, if you haven't gotten the point from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now, Joseph does this over and over. Remember how his brothers take him and cast him into the pit at the beginning of his story? He's got a coat of many colors marking him out as the one with authority, even though he's the youngest in his family. They strip him of that robe and throw him into the pit called Sheol, which means the place of the dead. That's where the dead would go, right? He's cast into death. And then he's drawn back up, only to be bound in slavery and taken into the home of Potiphar, the chief guard of the Pharaoh of Egypt. He's bound there until he rises through the ranks and becomes chief authority in Potiphar's house and is given a new robe, a new garment that marks him out as the one with authority. Until things go wrong again and he's cast back into prison, only to have Pharaoh himself draw Joseph up and clothe him with a garment that marks him out as the one who bears authority, not over um, Potiphar's house, not, not over these smaller things, but over all of Egypt. Death into resurrection, into new calling in life. All of these stories point us to Jesus, yes? Who did go all the way into death, into Sheol, the place of the dead, but rose again and is ascended to the right hand of God the Father, Not having authority just over Israel or just over God's family or just over Egypt, but over all things and all places and all time. What I want you to hear this morning 
is that you are also joined to this story that you also have experienced already, most of you, that little death and resurrection that leads to freedom and a new calling and a purpose in life. And that happened to you in your baptism. As you pass beneath the waters, we're reminded of, of Christ's baptism first. We're also reminded of God claiming His people Israel, who are the Hebrews, in slavery now in Egypt, and leading them through the waters of the sea and into now a land of promise set free for God's purpose. We're reminded of Noah and the family of God, which was preserved crossing the waters through the ark and brought a new possibility to creation. We're reminded of the creation story itself when the Spirit hovered over the waters, which were like chaos, they were void. Tohu wabohu is the awesome Hebrew phrase that you should say later just because it's fun. It was without form and void were the waters and the Spirit hovering over them as God speaks then draws forth land and, and a place for life to flourish in abundance. You're joined to that story, the one of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The one marked by Israel drawn out of slavery and Noah brought across the chaos of death. You're joined to that story by the Creator who is also the Redeemer in your own baptism. So this morning we're going to reflect for just a moment on some of those aspects of baptism which we've witnessed this morning as Jackson entered into that covenant as well. Not under his own power or strength. Jackson's really advanced, but he's not standing up on his own yet, right? We had to hold him in his baptism. Not under his own strength, but under God's strength and promise and authority. But before that, I want you to listen carefully and listen well to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with the fourth verse. This is the word of the Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, 
each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all receive honor together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. At which point, Paul speaks to us in the 13th chapter of love, the way of love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have bound us together as one body and that you speak to us your word by the one spirit. Open now our hearts and our lives that we might hear you and be joined to you and renewed in our covenant vows with you that we might all share together in the oneness that is Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about baptism, <clears throat> being joined together with this story um, from the scriptures that we might think of as being a really long ways away from us, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we think about creation and the mystery of that. As we think about how we're joined together to it, I want us to keep in mind a few things. First, First dimension of baptism that we'll mention is the cosmic dimension. That includes kind of everything, right? It's the, it's the biggest category, the cosmic aspect of baptism. Uh, you may remember that I've shared before uh, a photo in your bulletin of an icon of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus was baptized. That's the first thing our own baptism should remind us of. We say one Lord, one faith, one baptism is not actually ours. It's the one baptism of Jesus to which we have been drawn and joined. When we think about Christ's baptism, especially through the lens of this icon, we can imagine and, and picture in our minds a river flowing down. As you look at the image, it's coming towards you. At the top of either side of the river, there are mountains which rise up. And there's John in the Jordan. And also Jesus, as he has stepped into the water to be baptized there, there's a dove which takes the form you know, the Holy Spirit is taking the form of a dove coming down to anoint Christ in his baptism. And up at the top of the image, there's just a sliver of something that you can tell is the sun, which is dark, which that's a little strange. It's meant to represent God the Father and the mystery of God, which we can't encapsulate in an image. It is, it is darkened to show an element of mystery there. This is called a theophany because it reveals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, the triune God at one in work and will. 
And so as we see this picture um, and gaze carefully at it, those familiar elements strike us. But if you look really carefully, down at the bottom of the image as the water, as the river flows towards you, and you peer carefully, you'll think that the river might be full of fish. There are little characters down at the bottom of the scene. And if you look extra carefully at them, as they sort of exist underneath or behind the waves in some way, you will see that they are sort of hybridizations of, is it a man? Is it a fish? What, it, what is it? A strange mixture of creatures there at the boundary, at the bottom. These represent the other gods, the forces of chaos. We've talked about Tohu Wabohu at the creation. Water in particular at the beginning represents this chaos, which we see in the story of Noah when God opens up that watery chaos by the Spirit and gives order and meaning to things. Life flourishes, but when God relents, the waters come back and the chaos destroys. In Christ's baptism, we see little hints of those little gods which bring chaos and destruction into the world being overcome by Jesus. It's actually a sign of Christ's victory on the cosmic scale. We see the dove represent the spirit. We see the mountains and the people in the image. But down at the bottom, at the boundary, at the very depths, we see represented the chaos that can come sometimes seeking and clamoring to draw us down into death. That's happening all the time in our lives. There are things that seek to drag us down. And Christ's baptism testifies to the fact that he has conquered. In the waters of baptism, we are purified, washed clean, forgiven, made new. In Christ's baptism, he didn't need that. Christ actually purifies the waters. And in so doing, gives us a little taste of the great victory that he will achieve, the final one, where he descends even into the chaos of death, overcoming death itself and overcoming the devil by breaking free of death in his resurrection. That death and resurrection is what we're joined to in baptism. I don't know where Jackson will go in his life. I'm excited to find out. I don't know what he will do, the things that he will love, the joys that he will have, or the challenges that he will face, or the suffering that he will endure at some point. God forbid, but most of us are familiar with things wanting to drag us down into death and into the depths. And one day, he will have to face death, as, all, as will all of, we, all of us. His baptism announces that Jesus is victorious over anything that he will ever face even those greatest of foes, which is death, that Jesus is victorious for him, and he's been bound to that. There's a cosmic element of baptism. But because we've mentioned Jackson's name, there's also a personal one. We baptized him saying his name, Jackson James Up the Grove. It's personal. The God who created all these things and operates on a cosmic level a transcendent, in a transcendent way that goes beyond anything we could imagine, also meets us personally. And at the font has met Jackson and has called him by name and has actually given him a new name. We named him by his given name 
and we joined him through this baptism in God's grace and word by the Spirit to the name of God. He has his family name, but now he's given God's name, baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is transcendent and cosmic is also incredibly personal. And as he is brought out of the waters, we marked him. I marked him on his forehead with the sign of the cross. I said, Jackson, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, and you have been marked as Christ's own forever. Forever is also a big word, isn't it? That doesn't mean until... Life gets challenging and you face hardship. That doesn't mean you're marked as Christ's own for a little while. Or until you turn 18 and become an adult in the eyes of the state. That doesn't mean you're marked as Christ's own when you really struggle and wrestle with your faith later in your life. That doesn't mean until you get through all the questions that you might have as You try to understand and integrate your life experience with the faith that has been handed down to you. That doesn't mean that you're marked as Christ's own forever as long as great things are happening to you. Or as long as you show up to church on Sunday mornings every week. Or as long as you practice your faith with rigor. It means forever. Jackson has been marked as Christ's own forever. And so have you. Forever's a big word. And it's not your strength that carries you through and seals the covenant. It's God who walks in and stands in for you in Christ and fulfills all righteousness and names you as His own and gives you a share in His name. There's a cosmic dimension. There's a personal dimension. But there's also a relational dimension to baptism. Um, Jackson didn't make his way up to the front by himself. He has family who surrounded him this morning and helped bring him to church. And he has parents who have stood with him up front and who have made promises and taken vows on his behalf. And not only that, it's not just his own blood family or immediate relation that has done that. It's also God's family. It's also you. You have made a promise to Jackson this morning that you would help to raise him and nurture him in the faith. And when we come to this table, as we're preparing to receive communion, there's something that we say every time. We ask the Holy Spirit to fall upon this bread and this wine to renew us in the covenant that we once and for all received in our baptism, but to renew us again in that covenant, to make us one with Christ, and to make us one with all those who've been baptized into His name. You remember me saying that? I say it every time. What I want to tell you this morning is that not only is this an occasion for you to remember your own baptism, it's also for you to recognize that this morning you are one with God in Christ. That means that you are now also one with Jackson. You can no longer think of Jackson as Jeff and Megan's child and responsibility. He's also yours. You can no longer think of Jackson as someone separate from you and a nice, you know, he gives great smiles after church, you know, and you can go by and wave and maybe see if you get something back from him. But that's, that's all. You have promised that you would raise him in the faith, that you would love him as Christ loved, that through your ministry and instruction and care 
that he would come to understand more fully how beloved he is by God. You bear that responsibility, not only for him, but all those little ones who've been baptized recently, and for each other. We are bound together in Christ. Significant thing here we're talking about. There's a social, there's a relational aspect to this baptism, which leads us into the, to the ecclesiological aspect to baptism, which just means the church. This is the church that we're talking about. It actually brings us to our scripture this morning, which reminds us that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, which gives us all gifts. And one of the amazing things about being a part of this church is that I get to see all of your gifts. You guys are incredibly gifted in a myriad of ways, and it's fascinating to see the things that God has given you to love and to do and to pursue. But I also want to remind you that the Scriptures remind us the Spirit gives you gifts not just for yourself. In fact, it doesn't even mention you when it comes to your gifts. It says that you have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit for the common good for the sake of the church, for the other people you see in these pews, for Jackson. You have been, we'll make it very personal because it's more applicable. You have been given gifts in your life and they are given to you by the Spirit to help Jackson grow. To bless him. I want you to think about how you're using the gifts God has given for that purpose. And not just Jackson, but for the other people in this room, for the common good. You've been given gifts for the upbuilding of the body. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, a PhD in rocket science or, you know, something, some unbelievable gift. <clears throat> Paul, after naming all these gifts, says, I'll tell you the greatest one. Love. It's a gift that I've actually seen Jackson, who can't do a whole lot yet. I mean, he can do amazing, but, you know, he's not doing back handsprings down the aisle. Jackson's actually sharing his gifts with you. I've seen it the last three or four weeks in particular. Jackson, I, I don't know, a, a unique gift of the Spirit here. He's been walking some pews, you know, walking the backs of the pews. You know, maybe there's a Pentecostal bent to Jackson a little bit, but when... He's been getting passed from pew to pew to pew during worship. Different people holding him. And you know what happens when somebody reaches out and holds a child? Have you ever watched their face? Oh my goodness. There's love in their face. Jackson, is just by being him, is sharing God's love with you. And you're receiving it. And guess what happens when you, when you nod and smile and you share and you bless and you come by and check in? Guess what, Guess what love does? Love binds people together. That's God's love binding us together and binding you together. You, you don't have to have some un, unimaginable or worldly kind of gift to bless the other people in this room. The main gift you've been given is life with Christ and the Spirit, which means you're bound in love to God and God's love can now pass through you to each other. You have love to share. That is the greatest gift of all. How are you going to share that love intentionally with the other people in this room? And with the world. 
There's a spiritual dimension, not only a cosmic, a personal, a relational, and a church dimension to baptism, and there's also a spiritual dimension. I'm not going to belabor this point because this is actually what I'm going to write about for about the next year and a half with school. After Christ's baptism, he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he's tempted by the devil, where he relies on Scripture and some particular habits, ascetic patterns of fasting, of prayer, of vigil keeping, of solitude. He's doing some particular things. Sometimes we wonder, well, I've been baptized and I believe I'm a Christian. What, what is there for me to do? And Christ shows us. After your baptism, here's what you do. Until you pass over Jordan. You experience this life in some sense as a wilderness, as not your true home. And so I'm going to write some about that. But, but I want to say that remembering your baptism is not just to remember that you've been claimed by God, that you belong to God, that God promises you that he's working out everything for your good. It also reminds you that this is a difficult thing. The Christian life is not meant to be cushy and easy. There's blessing and there's love that abounds more than we could imagine, but it, it is also very hard. You will not be called to a more difficult thing in your life. But if you think about the things that have been most worthy of work and effort in your life, those are probably the things you value the most. Whether it's your work, your family, or particular hobbies or acts of service that you give a lot of time and energy to, those are the things that you give yourself to most of all. And the Christian life is not meant to be just easy and feel good. It asks everything, because that's what Christ gives to you. Everything. Everything of himself. And so the work is actually a reception of the gift, to turn away from self-centeredness to self-giving love. And this leads us finally to the last thing. Um, Christians, those of us who were baptized, claimed by God, um, delivered from the things that will be set against us in our lives, um, receiving God's name, bound together in family, in the church, in relationships of love, where we struggle to get rid of ourselves that we might actually love others freely. There's also the eschatological dimension. Christians who are baptized don't live by the past. Anybody ever felt guilt coming into church sometimes? Christians don't live by the past. It doesn't define us. Christians actually don't even live by the present, really, though it's important to be aware of Christ's presence with you in the moment. Christians actually live by the future. We live by the fullness of that kingdom which baptism joins us to. And we live out of that relationship with Jesus and the values that constitute His forever rule and reign. That's why love's chief among them. Because the kingdom is marked by God's love and our now mutual love for one another. When we live by that future reality in the present, guess what comes ushering into the present? The kingdom. When we live in obedience to Jesus and His rule, which one day will, will be consummated, will be fulfilled in all its fullness, we can't even imagine how, how unbelievably good that will be. When we live in obedience to Jesus and that future reign right here and right now, in your life today, tomorrow, when you go to the grocery store, when you bring your child to church that he may be baptized, when, when you live according to that, the kingdom comes now in the present, right in this moment. 
We live by the future in a way that ushers it into our present circumstances. And so we experience God's victory over anything we might face. A lot of dimensions to baptism. We only touched on a few of them. Let me put it to you like this, last line. Once heard it said that for the Christian person, the entirety of the Christian life is really an attempt to receive and live out of what you were given in your baptism. The Christian life is about receiving and living out of the truth of what has happened to you already in your baptism. That's why it's a bit of a struggle, because we keep getting back in the way and back in the way and back in the way. But your whole life is defined by what happens right here and what has happened to Jackson. There's nothing more true about him or you than what we've said today. And so now we get to work that out together, to struggle and wrestle, to receive, and then to live out of our unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name into which we've been baptized. Amen.